Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, welcome back. This is a, another entry of Talking During the Movie. I'm Mike. And I'm James, and this is Mike and James, Witch Hunters. Yeah, and uh, this uh, this week we're going to be talking about the new Noah Baumbach film, While We're Young. Um, we're also going to get into uh, our first segment of uh, Best of the Worst, or I think this week it's going to be Worst of the Best. It uh, is. James is going to make a case against the most beloved superhero film ever made. Uh, according to IMDb, the fourth greatest film ever made. It's Christopher in the Nolan's, Billion Club. It's in the Billion Club. Everyone loves it. Your grandmother loves it. Uh, Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. Um, and uh, I, I'm really excited to hear his argument for that. Uh, but before we get into either of those, uh, uh, let's just start off with a few uh, uh, pieces of movie news this and week. As, as last week, the movie news this week is mostly trailers. Uh, mostly. But- that's that's what happens. But actually, we're gonna start it off with uh, not a trailer, nope. which is exciting. So nope. just well, a poster, just a poster. A for... poster of M Night Shyamalan's The Visit. What may be the most anticipated film of 2015? Okay, our finest directors. <laughs> one of our one of the finest working directors. So when Mike actually told me about this new segment. I'd never heard of it before. And my initial reaction was, they're still letting M. Night Shyamalan make movies? It's amazing. His career, which has been talked about uh, all over the place, so I don't really want to get too much into it now, but I, I, it's just amazing. The, the level of decline that M. Night Shyamalan has gone through is astounding. It's it's worth study all on its own, how someone went from the sixth, the sixth sense to uh, the triple threat of... Uh, the happening, the last Airbender, and After Earth. I, it blows my mind. In any director's filmography, that is probably the worst like three movie stretch I can think of. And uh, in, in any in any semi successful director's filmography, at least. I mean, you could probably make a case for like Adam Sandler making some uh, making a worse three movie stretch, but uh, he's not really considered one of the greats, or never I, has been. Adam Sandler was in Punch Drunk Love. And so he's absolved of all other wrongdoing. Oh, okay. Mostly. <laughs> um, you might no. want to take a take a step back there. I don't think no, no, no. I I really love Punch Drunk Love, man. I don't think um, Punch Drunk Love can forgive Grown Ups too, though. That's <laughs> never saw it. Never will. <laughs> but no, the the I mean, it's amazing. It, the, the point where film companies who once flocked behind M. Night Shyamalan's name as a huge selling point for their films. Uh, for After Earth, for example, they, they tried to completely uh, remove it from all marketing, and they didn't even want people to know that he made it. Uh, it they, they were marketing as the, the movie with Will and Jane Smith, not the movie directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah, so. you had to really like search real hard to find out who directed that, and then you find out it was M. Night Shyamalan, and you're like, oh, okay. My my big hope for the visit though the, the poster is hilarious and we can I think we can post it on the website. Uh, it's basically a an imitation of kind of like the poster to Fargo. Uh, what what do you call it? Like uh, macrame or something? Kind of like a, oh, something a grandma would make. Some sort of needlepoint. So it's a needlepoint yeah. exactly. And uh, it's it lists out grandma's rules. Uh, and then below that a list of three. Number one, have a great time. Number two, eat as much as you want. And number three, don't ever leave your room after 9.30 p.m. And so it's a horror film, as you can imagine. So. With bloody fingerprints on the sides of it. Uh, an original thriller from writer-director M. Night Shyamalan, The Visit. So they're they're putting his name on this one. Um, and my they're hope, going for it. <laughs> my hope is that 
either the studio or M Night or whatever have finally become self aware and are actually just making a movie that is essentially a, a self parody of the M Night we've come to know and despise. And I'm kind of excited. I'm <laughs> I'm probably not going to see it in theaters, but I you, you never know. You never hey, know. <laughs> you never know what could. Do you... Never underestimate the swill of horror movies that come out in October. This might be the the cream of the crop. Mm-hmm. I don't know what, what the, I think. There's a new Paranormal Activity movie coming around uh-huh. around that time. So uh, uh, at least is the Saw franchise over? Are they oh, not yeah, no, the Saw franchise that's been over for a while, man. Oh, good. I I'm I am so out of that loop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm the I'm the horror movie expert, as you can tell, among the two of us. And oh, definitely. Uh, so uh, I don't know. It's it's sort of like M Night Shyamalan's going. To, I mean, with a horror, with a straight up horror movie, he's kind of I guess going back to his roots. You could say, sort of, but um, also not really. He's really. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's gonna be weird. None of his movies have ever really been straight up horror. Uh, the Sixth Sense was definitely more chilling, mm-hmm. uh, which I admired about it. Actually, its atmosphere was one of its strongest elements. And honestly, same with Unbreakable, just this element of the unknown. That That's kind of what he was really good at at the beginning. And that's why his twists were effective, is because he kind of left you hanging this whole film. There, there was something off about everything, and you weren't quite sure what it was. Now it's just he creates just some of the funniest lines and most awkward readings in, in movie history. It's it's amazing. What? <laughs> no! no. <laughs> Alright, uh, let's let's move on to some more interesting news. Sure. And this is the, the standard the standard part of the news segment, of the weekly news segment with all these big blockbusters coming out. They're of course gonna release more trailers. Mm-hmm. And the first one on our agenda is Batman vs. Superman, a movie I've long been outspoken against. Another superhero movie, yay! Yay! It's like it's all of what we talk about lately. It's involving <laughs> Batman, who starred Ben, A- starring Ben Affleck, um, because he did so great in the Daredevil. So let's give him another superhero role. We, we all wanted him to be another superhero. We just—it was a shame that they chose not to make Daredevil two and just did Elektra instead. Um, yeah, oh or it's, it's it's really a welcome return. Yeah, no, it's uh, I I don't know, Ben. I don't like the movie being made, but I was actually I'm actually a little interested to see how they're going after watching the trailer. Oh, because I am I am not at the slightest. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I think from what I saw from the trailer, the most glowing recommendation I can give is that it. After seeing the trailer, I'm of the opinion that it may not be as shit as I thought it was going to be, and that's that's my uh, review. You could put that on your Blu-ray case when it comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm of the opinion it will be not as shit as Man of Steel. Oh, good. Which I know is pretty. Uh, some people love it. Mm-hmm. it I think it's garbage. Uh, it's, it's pretty garbage. It's it's like it's superficial Nolan. It's Nolan light. It's Nolan without the ideas. And the 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 very least I can say from the trailer is it looks like it has. Some ideas. It has some ideas about what to do with Superman that I kind of thought should have been addressed in even Man of Steel, just a modern Superman reboot. It should deal with these sort of, you know, these things that. I mean, Superman is essentially an overlord. Superman's this god who people afford the right to keep them safe. And I feel like the question of 
whether that's right is actually really relevant today or whether we should be doing that. I think that's a relevant question to ask, and it's a good direction to take Superman. My problem with the trailer, they, they do address this. My problem with it, though, is they're going another Nolan route, and this is something that Nolan is very guilty of. Uh, all his ideas become talking points, and everyone is going to talk about it. Because that's half the trailer. Yeah. It's just people presenting their philosophical well, well, views on Superman. Here's what I saw from that. This was, to me, was a weird switch. And this is why I'm kind of interested. A weird switch on the uh, the Dark Knight Returns uh, story, the uh, uh, comic book arc of Dark Knight Returns. I mean, even oh, down absolutely. to the Batman's new logo. It's oh, this... it's... And Batman's suit, his like kind his of, like metal yeah. suit yeah. that he's used to fight Superman. But the thing is, in in the Dark Knight Returns, all that talk was about Batman, how Batman's a menace who creates the villain, who creates the villains that That's Batman true. needs to save. So now they're kind of saying that oh, Superman's the the guy who's gotten out of control, and we need. Batman, I guess, to stop him. So that's where I'm kind of confused because in, in Dark Knight Returns, Batman is gone. You know, Batman comes back, and then the President of the United States sends Superman to either tell, either ask him to stop or force him to stop. And he ends up trying to force him to stop, and he gets his ass handed to him because go Batman. So this one, I'm not really sure what role Batman is going to play in it. I I think though, the best thing to do would on in a movie like this is honestly just like. Either complete, either completely invest in the character of Bruce Wayne, or don't invest in it at all. Um, and honestly, I'm worried they're gonna do not investing in it at all because you know it's, it seems like it might be a bit of a bloated movie as it is. Yeah. And and if that's the case, like I kind of I'm still gonna be left with wondering what's gonna happen. Why why is Batman in this movie other than to fight? You know. Uh, Justice League. That's why. That, because they need to they need to make a Justice League movie as soon as possible because. Marvel's They've already, already lost the movement. battle with the Avengers. They've already oh, lost. They're, they're going to try and they're going to try and regain ground, and I think it's going to be a colossal mess. I think I think DC's going to have to destroy themselves before they can sort of reemerge uh, with anything really worthwhile. I'm not looking forward to re- much coming from them in the near future. I think I think it's going to be mimicking Marvel's business model, and th- this is not me saying I like DC. Or I like Marvel inherently better than DC. I just think Marvel got a great business model, and instead of coming up with their own and innovating, DC put all their eggs in the Christopher Nolan basket. Once the Dark Knight trilogy was over, they had nothing left to really work with. So now they're trying to play catch up, and it's—I mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to work very well. Well, it's especially not going to work in, very well with all the other big blockbuster movies on the market especially oh. from marvel but also the also scores from... of star wars films that are coming out i learned very late that there were going to be other star wars films coming out besides the sequel trilogy besides yep. just episode seven eight nine and i'm still not really i still don't really have my head around that idea because to me star wars has always been such an insular thing it's mm. always been star trek there are about what five TV series, um, a ton of movies, and two and two rebooted movies at this point. Um, it's a huge franchise with, you know, endless variations and different spinoffs and whatnot. And while Star Wars has always had spinoffs and other media, uh, my idea of Star Wars has always been very limited to the six films. And honestly, I really only like embracing three of those films. Um, <laughs> but my idea of Star Wars is so limited to episodes one through six. 
And even with the sequel trilogy coming up, I was prepared to embrace seven to nine. However, now there's going to be all these uh, Star Wars spinoff films, and uh, I feel like the idea of what a Star Wars movie is and what Star Wars actually the actual identity of Star Wars is going to be shifting a lot. Um, and I don't really know anything about the other films, but uh, the new trailer for Episode Seven, of course. Yeah, what did you think of that? The Star Wars fanboy in Mike Ladd, what did you think of that? I fanboyed real hard. Uh, I I had to stop what I was doing at work and, and retreat to a break room where I proceeded to watch the trailer five times on my phone. And, uh, I was I was a kid again. I was five years old watching the original Star Wars. I never watched the original Star Wars you, film. I was five years old. You were <laughs> but, Matthew McConaughey in Interstellar? That was the best reaction. That was that was I I like hate like funny reaction videos usually, but that one that was uh, cannot deny that. I just thought it was pretty perfect the I, way I they got it together, cut it together people, like that. Most people have probably seen it, but I think we should maybe post that too. It's 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 fantastic, um, equally as fantastic as the trailer. I don't know what did you think of it because I'm just gonna fanboy about it. Okay, I, so I liked the amount of. I, I like the amount of restraint I saw there, and that they didn't buy into the prequel trilogy, like big budget movie, you know, kind of like spectacle. You yeah. know, the the things that the start that the first trilogy, uh, and I mean first not chronologically first in you know the, actual time. The original trilogy. I think the original trilogy, what the original trilogy had that the prequel trilogy did not. They knew that sort of less is more when it comes to it. It was very like stripped down, and I didn't see yeah. many. You know, grandiose, which isn't the way you describe that by the, it's grandiose. grandiose. Yeah, uh, I didn't see many like grandiose action sequences. At least, I mean, I know it's a trailer, but you know, they didn't they didn't lead with that. You know, like one of the first shots, it's like five seconds of a uh, person speeding along the desert, speeding along the desert in the in uh, the distance, and that was sort of one of those shots, very reminiscent of our early Star Wars films, and also reminiscent of that idea that you know we don't really need. We, we may have a big budget, but we don't need to show it in every sequence. But the image of the Star Destroyer crashed in the sand is one of the most breathtaking things I've ever seen. Yep, that was uh, that was it really was good. So I know that guilt. that shot had more to do than just the let's show a person speeding in the sand. But but, but no no no. But you're you're hitting on something because the the appeal of the original trilogy, well, one of the appeals is that it gave a new look and feel to science fiction. Before then, everything was very sleek and futuristic and metallic, and it looked... Every single future looked uh, hermetic, like no one had lived in it. And th- one of the... A lot of things about the original trilogy is just how organic everything looks, how dirty and grimy, and and that everything's used. Even the Millennium Falcon, which looks awesome, is referred to as a piece of junk, and it's kind of falling apart. And, you know, and that's something that was completely lost in the prequels, and uh, I think, honestly, if, uh, if uh, J.J. Abrams does nothing else but pander to my own nostalgia for the original trilogy... I will be happier than uh, if I had just watched a prequel Star Wars film. So <laughs> I'm honestly more okay with that than I probably should be. Because I know that that's what he's really good at. That's what <laughs> I, I, I like his Star Star Trek films, particularly the first one. Um, but I know that a lot of it is pandering to nostalgia. So I'm kind of going in 
half expecting that. I really want more out of it. But honestly, I think he knows what Star Wars fans respond to the most. I think he's coming for, at it from a fanboy perspective. So if he doesn't provide the great filmmaking that I'm after, I think he'll at least respect Star Wars uh, the way that I at least want it to be respected. He probably gets it, gets what people like about Star Wars better than George Lucas does at this point, to be honest. Well, I don't know that that's a really far-reaching thing to say. I don't think you're stepping on many toes by saying that. You know, I feel like everyone will agree with the statement that the worst thing that ever happened in Star Wars was, in fact, George Lucas. I mean, I don't want to diss him too much. He had the initial spark. He made the first movie. He went through so many trials and tribulations to get it going. But I really think he lost his way. I think he lost his a lot of skill as a director in the 22 years between A New Hope and Phantom Menace. And I, he... The special editions just show how out of touch he is with, with what the original trilogy meant to people. So, uh, you know, I he, he seems to be a good person, and he's a creative individual. He he lost his storytelling abilities and his his skills as a director a long time ago. So, so, so Mike doesn't know this, but in our I think our pod our first podcast since, or maybe our second one. Yeah, I think it was last week. She went on a, a Star Wars rant, and I had to cut it out because it wasn't relevant, and we were running oh no. too long. Oh no! Uh, but now, and now he gets to do it. He sneaks it in here. So. I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep it as brief as possible. I'm trying to keep it terse, but yeah, that's how you know. I don't want to badmouth him too much. He seems to be a good man. He's donated a lot of his fortune to charity. He he uttered the phrase, "I have enough money," after he sold Star Wars to Disney, and mm-hmm. I think he's a good person. I, I feel like it's not fair to lose sight. Yeah, we shouldn't lose sight of that. Okay. But I'm really happy he doesn't have Star Wars anymore. I'm I'm elated. And and honestly though, I'm most excited about the uh, Ryan Johnson helmed episode eight yep. coming in a few years. I because I love Ryan Johnson. I he is a director, and I'm really excited to see what he's going to do with it. J.J. Abrams, I, I I I'm sure he'll make a good movie. Um, I'm sure it will it'll uh, delight me as a Star Wars fan, but uh, Ryan Johnson I think is going to make cinema out of this, so we'll see what happens well we gotta move on to other cinema and we're just gonna go straight into our review Uh, so we each saw over this past week a film making the rounds right now called While We're Young Mm -hmm. it's by Noah Baumbach who I had never heard of but uh, you had never heard of him at all no I I had heard of him, I had never seen a film by him before I, I wasn't, I just want to say I wasn't much of a connoisseur of him beforehand. I knew him. I, I knew I had heard the name a lot, and I had seen The Squid and the Whale, which is a great movie. But it's been maybe five or six years since I've seen it, um, and I haven't had the chance to catch up with it yet either. But uh, afterward, I did. I did see Francis Ha finally from last year as sort of a reference point for this one. Uh, his, oh, nice. His film before this. So. So while we're young, is about sort of a um, what are they like early forties couple. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ben Stiller plays someone named Josh and his wife is Cornelia played by Noemi Watts and they are sort of going through sort of the typical motions you'd expect like they're they kind of miss the boat on having children everyone else around them is having children that puts pressure on them and they're sort of wanting to be in this part of this younger generation which helps when they meet two snappy young people played by uh, Adam Driver and uh, Amanda Seyfried, uh, their names are Jamie and Darby, respectively, and uh, they, they're they basically the uh, idea of hipster con- condensed into two people. 
they're basically a parody of this culture and uh, Ben Stiller just becomes infatuated with them um, and uh, Adam Driver's character Jamie is infatuated with him because of a documentary film that he had made many many years ago I think over 10 years ago so yeah and... Ben Stiller is sort of like this uh, documentary filmmaker and I don't want to say he's down on his luck because he's really just he's invested so much into like one project it seems like like 10 years or upwards of I think he's um, in a creative slump I think he's yeah that's a good way to describe it yeah and this is where the trademark Noah Baumbach film references come in uh, Noah Baumbach's a huge he, he knows a lot about film history classic directors and he works in a lot of references in his films uh, and uh, while we're young does most of this through dialogue between Ben Stiller and uh, Adam Driver's characters talking about the documentary form, uh, classic documentary filmmakers. Um, and basically they, they bond to, to the point where Ben Stiller wants to help Adam Driver realize his documentary project, which he scoffs at at first. Um, and uh, the irony of the film is that ultimately Adam Driver has much more success at his project than Ben Stiller has over the last 10 years. And uh, Ben Stiller becomes jaded when he finds out. Uh, well, let's, uh, not, let's not get too much far oh, into it right sorry, now. Oh, sorry, sorry. No, no, you're good. Um, we're, we're in the spoiler-free portion of our reviews. And again, Mike and I have done a good job of not telling each other what we think until the uh, actual... Um, podcast of it but i will let the noah bombach connoisseur go first on that so just give me a give me a synopsis of, of the opinion by mike not his best work but i really enjoyed it <laughs> I, that's uh i i i was kind of taken aback at first because of the characterization of jamie and darby as as not really people just this idea of a subculture that they embodied and it seemed like there were a lot of jokes at them at the expense of their characters, um, particularly Jamie and Driver, um, only to find as the film progresses, there is a reason for that. There's a reason why I, I'm not really supposed to buy into him as a real fleshed out person. Um, but I was surprised coming from a movie like Francis Ha, where uh, there was so much empathy that Noah Baumbach placed in the Francis Ha character, and it seemed to have this kinship with her, even though the whole, like that movie's about youth. That movie's about like a um, directionless 20 something uh, person. And this movie's about middle age. Um, and uh, I'm interested in actually your take on it because one of your uh, I, questions going into it was, can a great actor, uh, and by that you're referring to Naomi Watts, mm -hmm. support what you view as a, a more subpar or a lesser actor, or just just someone of more limited range, I guess. And that's Ben Stiller. And the irony is that in this movie, I don't really know if Cornelia is in a position much to... Well, yeah, yeah, let me, get, let me get there, let me get there. Yeah. So that was my thesis, and I've, uh, I've experienced this watching a few other films. Like, there was this movie, not very good movie, called Welcome to the Rileys that starred both Kristen Stewart and James Gandolfini. Quite a... Uh, on paper, a very different talent scale for each of those, and I thought Chris, I, I thought Kristen Stewart did a great job in that movie, and I was like, you know, it's probably because she had a, a really solid actor on <laughs> uh, on the side of her. Uh, in this one, it really they weren't 
those the characters didn't work off each other the same way. This was really all how did the director use Ben Stiller? And in my mind, he really he used him. I've seen Ben Stiller in this role like a thousand times, so he didn't really ask him to do anything outside of his range. You know, I'll get into more of the depth later, but that's sort of what I thought. And honestly, my take on the whole film was a little different than yours, <laughs> uh, to say the least. It's not it's not that I necessarily didn't like it. I rolled my eyes a little too a little too. I, it was my eye rolls were a little too frequent throughout the movie, mm-hmm. I'll say, and I think uh, it was kind of a weird irony because a lot like Ben Stiller's character, I don't think Noah Baumbach himself knew where he wanted to go with the film he was making. Um, mm-hmm. So I kind of got confused at a few different spots of, of just in terms of direction. I didn't think there was clear. It was clear in that, and maybe that's the irony of it. I don't know. A lot of it was lost on me, and honest, and the two. There was too many sort of, you know that you were talking about those like jokes or like commentary on gener- like the new generation versus old generation. Yeah. I, there, I thought that those came off just really eye rolly for me and, and sometimes, and in some cases vomit inducing. So I, you know, it's not like I, I'm, I'm telling our podcasters to go see Fast Furious 7 uh, over this because if you're going to go see a movie, you might as well see something that's worth your time. And I think... While we're young, is worth your time, but honestly, just wait a couple more weeks and the Avengers will be out. That's... <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, I'll give you this. The movie was... I don't want to say unfocused, because that sounds like a criticism. It went a lot of different ways, and I don't want to necessarily frame that as a negative. It's actually a movie I wouldn't mind visiting again, because I'm... In the moment, every single development, every single scene in sequence seemed logical to me like a like a plate you know a reasonable place to go a reasonable new idea to explore in relation to these characters and how they feel almost you know kind of in between stages in their life disconnected from their friends who are having kids but also sort of staring awestruck at this younger generation who which they're also not a part of but kind of aspiring to it and not all the only reflecting on it afterward does the movie get kind of messy for me? You don't not, not everything really adds up, and I'm wondering what certain scenes were doing there. But it all makes sense in the moment, so I kind of, that's why it's a movie I wouldn't mind revisiting, so I could have sort of a more holistic idea about what Noah Baumbach's trying to get across about this midlife crisis. I, I admire actually that I, I'm, I'm calling it midlife crisis. It's really not a midlife crisis movie, at least not a straightforward one, not in any conventional way that I've ever seen. And that's kind of what I was concerned about uh, with the opening scene, uh, them, you know, trying to, uh, you know, tell a baby a nursery rhyme uh, and forgetting the yeah. way that it goes. And it, the three <laughs> little pigs, come on. It was the, it was the three little pigs. The whole... <laughs> You know what's sad is that that scene kind of made me reflect on it, and I kind of realized I had essentially forgotten the three little pigs. At least at the moment, I had to go home afterwards. Three pigs, three up. houses made out of different types. I know. And the moral of the story is build your house out of fucking bricks. <laughs> I know, but but that seemed believable to me that someone that, that they would forget that. That seemed like a, a funny human way to start it off, but I I don't know the the the, the element of them, like the idea of them potentially having kids is revisited several times throughout the movie. And I'm not entirely sure what that says about the characters. Ben Stiller at certain points seems all for it. Um, 
All right, I think we Almost. better just go go full spoiler. We got, kind of got our synopsis reviews, so this is the... Oh, yeah, we, yeah, yeah. We're going to dig into it. And it's gonna you're you're so much more structured than I am, man. I'm trying. I, I'm usually not. You should see my <laughs> room right now. Uh, but, yeah, we're going to make this a little, uh, much quicker than Wild Tales, so don't... Yeah, don't, I promise. Don't fall asleep right now. Uh, but, yeah, I think you could skip it if you wanted to. It was still... It was, an, it was a nice watch, I'll say. So that's, that's my take, and... Beyond that, we'll just we'll just go on in. Uh, spoiler territory, you mean? Yep, all spoilers. So, uh, all right. go, continue your, your thought. I'm sure that was where it was going. Well, yeah, the the big spoiler in the film is you learn a truth about the Adam Driver character, namely in the way he's been presenting information to Ben Stiller about the documentary he's making. Uh, it, you basically find out that the predication for how they found this person that they were interviewing and all this extra um, meat that's going to go into the documentary, what's giving it its real emotional pull, wasn't stumbled upon by accident. You find out that Adam Driver essentially manipulated Ben Stiller into uh, stumbling upon this information, quote-unquote, to make it appear more spontaneous and to make his documentary appear more uh, involving and dramatic. Uh, And Ben Stiller... This is where the film sort of uh, goes into its uh, its big stance about do- documentary filmmaking. Yeah. The uh, in the modern age where everyone's recording everything all the time, uh, and how did you feel about that scene? The sort of climactic scene at the the, at the, the gala, the the retrospective. Yeah. So Naomi Watts's father, who was yeah. in the film, is a respected documentarian. And he's sort of like, it's like the it's a party celebrating his career. So he's getting some sort of some sort of lifetime achievement award, basically. Yeah. And um, that was that was honestly it, that showed for me the traditional like Ben Stiller arc that as I as I said in a pre-review that uh, I've seen this Ben Stiller character before. It's just a guy who's kind of like he thinks he's so in the right all the time, and it seems like all this crap's being piled on him. So you you kind of root for him, and then. It doesn't. His ultimate plan doesn't pan out, and people don't respond to him as as well as he thought it would be. Like I've seen that in like uh, Meet the Fockers or Meet the Parents, that kind of thing. Um, well, sure, but I, have you ever seen it with as much, I guess, gray area as there is here? I I love the fact that Adam Driver's character. No one has one motivation in this sequence. Everyone. The, you kind of expect the Adam Driver character to be a self-involved jerk and to just be kind of revealed as this vain asshole. Um, and uh, he's not. And also Ben Stiller in the film, you know, earlier in the the film has this really idealized view of him. Uh, and, you know, the audience is scoffing at it. And that turns out not to be true either. He does have an agenda, despite what despite what Ben Stiller thinks. But honestly, it's, it's ambition. And to some degree talent it's it's a bit dishonest but no one ultimately seems to care about it and in that scene i wasn't all with ben stiller i wasn't i wasn't it kind of does reveal him to be just as petty as adam driver is yeah dishonest. No, I, I like that that it sort of it brought him down off his like high horse for sure yeah because yeah, in this like I, I didn't you said like it sort of revealed that adam driver that Jamie was not a sort of self-involved prick. He still was. Like, there was nothing really he, redemptive he, about him at all. So he was he sort was, of just there to antagonize Ben Stiller to the point of breaking. And, and then, you know, of course, the breaking is... I thought it was used well to lend more to Ben Stiller's character. But 
his but Ad, Adam Driver's character really didn't uh, have much on his own. I don't think there was nothing redemptive, but the ambition at, remained. The fact that he he still revealed all this information. He still researched it and found it. I mean, there, there's something there. He's not completely a fraud, but he he's using his image as an image as uh, a way to present himself to the world that honestly, it seemed obvious to me from the beginning was I, not that I could predict this twist necessarily, but there was something phony about him. The whole movie. There and definitely was. Yeah. When, when this was revealed, it almost seemed like this moment of, okay, now I'm finally kind of understanding what he's all about and what kind of person he is. And he's finally no longer a joke. He's not a punchline. And I think that all those other movies where, you, know, you talk about Ben Stiller having that confrontation and no one reacting the way he's expecting them to. Those movies still always have you empathize with Ben Stiller. And I think this movie is smart enough to give you the perspectives of everyone else in the room. And that's actually the one point in the film I think it really does that. Because beyond that, at least in that latter half of the film, it's very much Ben Stiller's perspective that we're going through the whole time. Um, and to kind of pull the sheet out from under him, reveal his vainness, his, his own arrogance in a way I, I i admired that self-reflection it wasn't it wasn't the cleanest or the most satisfying climax but i i liked it i, I liked the interplay of relationships between the characters i'll just put it like that yep there were a few and, and that i would i can grant you that it, the interplay between the characters was nice and i liked how they carried that through the end what i did not really like was all the times and this is these were really distractions for me when um, Ben Stiller or well or anyone really or the really it's Noah Baumbach making to, broke away to make a commentary about like today's generation. It, it, they did not play for me at all. I was rolling my eyes all the time, like when all the adults bust out to cell phones, and then one guy's like. Why does everyone have to be on their cell phone at the same time? James, Everyone's James. so convinced that they're doing the most important thing. I'm like, shut up, Jesus. Oh, here, here, I'll look it up. No, no, no. Let's just not know. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're all sitting around, like, Googling. Yeah, one of my favorite one lines of in the like, movie. Oh, I'll just Google it. And then they're like, no, no, that's you can't you can't look it up. That'd be, that'd be cheating or whatever. And it's like, and they can't no, think you know of the answer They can't think question. of it. He's like, can I look it up? It's like, no, let's just not know. Okay. I love that line. I, did you? <laughs> yeah. I did. No, I I kind of did, and that, that I I didn't hate that one. That line's was, definitely was, not the worst. It was, it, and it it was definitely in that pre uh, Jamie's reveal stage where you still think he's like this caricature of a modern hipster and nothing more. And I do like that he they sort of broke beyond that, but I don't know that the direction really broke beyond that um, because it, from beginning to the end, you're still getting these uh, these cutaways almost of. Uh, oh, look at the modern world as it is, and it's weird too that ad, that sorry, Jamie and Darby, their characters are they're the young ones, but they're also like stuck in the past. Really, they they listen, watch old movies, they listen to records, they watch VHS, uh, VHS, VHS there's tapes. A, there's yep. a very clever montage, which I mean, yes, it's very on the nose and very obvious with the messages, but it's uh you know a cross cutting between. Uh, uh, ben Stiller and Naomi Watts' apartment uh, filled with technology, browsing on Apple TV, on iPhones all the time, and uh, the world of Jamie and Darby, who uh, play board games and watch VHS on old crappy TVs and have big vinyl collections. And they their experience is more organic and in the real world and grounded, which is, you know... I, I, 
at the very least, it's not a, a typical idea of how younger people live their lives, which I, I, I at least admire that it didn't go down super no, familiar. I, I like that it didn't, like, it, it wasn't the complete low-hanging fruit argument of, well, the older generation has it so much better, you know, it has it right, where the younger generation, look at them, they're all with their technology and stuff. It sort of put a spin on that, but it just felt too too forced to me. It felt too, like, uh, um, well, what's the word? Contrived. Yeah, it felt really contrived that they, you know, he set up these characters with such juxtaposed, with such uh, opposite values that that was... Um, you know, for for the purpose of of doing so, not that these characters would actually exist in the real world, and I don't argue that they that they are that they don't exist. I don't argue that there's not a Jamie and a Darby running around there, um, but it just seems like you know the, these two were made to make a point, and I'm still not sure what that point is. So, getting that as mm, I said, it felt I, I I I think it's the idea that that hipster identity is just as much a put on just as much a presentation as any other identity just as much as that you know idiot asshole uh businessman that ben stiller tries to pitch his documentary to to get more funding you know everything you know it's it's basically a a front in order to get people to empathize and connect with him um, to the point where he can't really distinguish between, you know, when he's trying to get money for his documentary and when he's just talking to a, a person as a human being uh, that just becomes how he presents himself to the world. So I, 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 I thought that that was clever. And while it would never really overtly talked about it in that way, it never overtly called him out on it. I think it's definitely there implicitly. Um, and I kind of enjoy it. It's the one subtle element of his character. Because, <laughs> you know, everything else is so exaggerated. Um, I will tell you the uh, the worst line in the movie is right at the end. <laughs> uh, the worst scene in the movie is right at the end. The, yeah, Let's it's the whole scene and it contains the worst line. So it's afterwards, they're in an airport, they see that... Um, uh, Jamie's making it big and like Rolling Stone or some shitty magazine. Yeah. Um, not like our podcast. We, yeah. We're not really in a position to, to bash other media, James. Oh, no, I'm not. But just some, some pop culture magazine mm-hmm. where Jamie's got a big... And Cornelia tries to sort of connect with Ben Stiller's previous dislike of Jamie's character by saying like, hey... I don't really like this guy. Look it off. He look at him. He's he's such an asshole. And then uh, Ben Stiller reveals his character development and says, "No, you're right. He's not evil. He's just young." <laughs> I I've never like left a theater with with a worse taste in my mouth. Not never. I I keep saying that, but I I literally turned my head and that, made a, that like that a line bothered you. Like, <laughs> that, that line bothered you more than it bothered me. I think. No, and it was worse, too. I think the worst lines, by the way, always draw attention to themselves. They're always like, oh, I'm setting this up. And when he said he's not evil, I'm like, if he says he's just young, and then he said it, I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's it's one of those things, it's really predictable. It's really like, oh, I learned that everything's not black and white, and that maybe there's something we can learn from the younger generation, just like they can learn from us. And yeah, it, seemed I... like, it almost seemed like a Stan Marsh sum up at the end of the, the film. The film had never episode. ever... <laughs> which is making fun of those what exactly. I like today. That's what it is. Tropes. It's a parody. Well, and I mean, the movie had never really established Jamie as evil at all. It established him as manipulating. It established him as dishonest. It never established him as evil. He's always yeah. had 
that's the thing. It, he, it always gave him. It didn't redeem him, quote unquote, explicitly, but it always had. It, he always had some degree of positive characteristics where he was never completely demonized for me the way he was for Ben Stiller, which I think highlighted his own character. That last line, you're right, is incredibly on the nose. Not a highlight of the movie. Um, I was more baffled by what immediately followed it because it seemed to be from a different movie. Yeah, no, that, and that's one of the scenes where I was like, where are you going with this, Noah Baumbach? Like, what's that, that, movie that about? That really jarred me, because I I think it was making a completely different argument than anything that had come before in the movie. So, so the last shot is... The, well, there. the context of the scene is they're going, they're flying to, uh, I believe, an African country to adopt yeah, it's like, it's a child. Yeah, it's Haiti, yeah. Yeah, or, or uh, Haiti, excuse me, to it's adopt a Africa. child. I'm sorry, uh, to adopt a child... Uh, because uh, Naomi Watts' character had gone through several miscarriages. That's why she didn't want to try having kids anymore. Um, so finally, at the end, they've sort of reached this resolution. They're going to adopt. Um, and they seem happy. They're excited. They're, they're embarking on this new chapter of their lives as parents. And then they look over and they see a kid sitting across from them playing with a smartphone and making calls and and doing all this stuff with it. And they they it cuts to a reaction shot of them looking concerned. No, they and almost look horrified. They, yeah, they look kind of horrified, really. And uh, that's it. The movie's over. Yeah. I I, I, I mean, like... is the idea that people are now too dependent on, on technology? technology? That is never an argument that the movie is making. I, I, they, well, well, except least... for that one line in earlier about, oh, we're all on our cell phones at the same time. Well, that okay, was kind of but, there. But, but they continue to use their cell phones. It's kind of a, just a self-aware line that everyone pulls out their cell phones whenever one, whenever one person does it. Um, mm-hmm. These new social ticks that have uh, that have come about, or these new social norms that have come about because of you know technology. I think it's more of a comment on how it's changed our interactions, not a condemnation of it. Um, and like the one con, you know, the main characters, the older characters, are the ones using technology throughout the film. It's ironically the younger people who tend to shy away from it. And and the film never takes a stance on it. it. Never says that one's right and the other's wrong. I think it just sort of explores it in this different way, which I I liked and enjoyed. But I that final scene did not belong in this movie. It did it the argument of. The, the look of horror at a child using smart technology had nothing to do with anything that came before it. And if it did, I would love to hear it. I'd, I'd love to hear that interpretation because I feel like I missed something big time. It, I, I don't know. I've, I feel like that wasn't the only time for me that I saw that sort of that card being played. And every time I rolled my eyes and then at the end I was just like, are you kidding me? No, there, there was never anything so explicitly condemning of, of technology. There was there was commentary on it. There was being, bringing awareness to how often it's used. But it's still pervasive throughout the film, and it's just a part of everyone's life. I think the film explores it without taking a moral stance on it. And that's why the ending just, just really shook. Like, I... I Really walked out of the theater with a weird feeling after that one. I, I, I sat through the end credits until it went to black, just kind of like, huh? just thinking about it. What did I miss something? How does this fit into the movie? And I have nothing. And that was that's the one loose end that I'm I'm really just ready to lop off. I don't need that in the movie. Uh, the, end your films ninety seconds earlier, guys. Just end them ninety seconds <laughs> earlier than you want. <laughs> that's uh, the moral here. And I want to. I mean, I don't think that this is one of No Bombach's... Okay, I've seen three movies by him, so I can't really make any grand sweeping statements about his career, but um, I think a movie like Francis Ha was 
a much more humanistic exploration. But that film was, I think it's an interesting counterpoint to While We're Young because it focuses on younger people. It focuses on a similar, it focuses on more aimlessness rather than this like existential uh, uh, problem that Ben Stiller and Naomi Watts have to face. Um, but it's more humanistic, honestly. It, it, its characters are more they're more real honestly they're they're like people you could know they're like people who you've lived with they're like your roommates um and i'm not sure anyone and while we're young exists anywhere outside of a movie um Mm -hmm. still uh it's i I think it is so i think it's light noah bombach from from what i've seen but uh i i think that there's a lot in it that's interesting and uh, original observations of this middle you know, sort of entering middle age that maybe don't quite resonate for me yet being in my early twenties still, but I, I don't know. I, th- I thought he did an interesting job of exploring it uh, and, and went unconventional ways with it that I, I was thrilled to see him. Th- I was thrilled to see where it was going to go. I, I'm, I was legitimately surprised and happy about it. And I do, before we wrap up conversation about this, I do want to ask mm-hmm. a question. Uh, this is a comedy. Did you find it funny? Did you laugh? Uh, very rarely, to be honest. Oh, I, really? Okay. Yeah. I no, but honest. I will say the the times I did laugh, I did not feel bad about laughing. I was like, okay, I'm I'm genuinely entertained, and I appreciate it for that. So, uh, those were honestly the funny bits in the movie were the best part because they felt to me the most genuine. As I said, my previous criticism was that a few bits felt too contrived. Yeah. The comedic bits, I I liked. And I will not, you know, have any any qualms about liking. Okay, I I, I ask because I was in the worst position to to judge this movie as a comedy, because um, I saw it at uh you know I, like I see most of my movies after after I get off work, so at about ten thirty at night with next to nobody in the theater. Actually, if there had <laughs> no one in the theater, I may have laughed harder. Um, as it was, there were about three other people in the movie theater, and I was terrified of. Of being, being the, that guy, yeah. being that guy, um, so I kind of mentally laughed, but I did it. I, I was keeping track of like how often I would have actually laughed had I been in a crowd, and uh, you can never really tell that. Obviously, you have weird reactions when you see a movie with a large group of people. Um, I found myself like chuckling to myself quite a bit, actually. Uh, mm-hmm. I was, yeah, I, I, I found it really funny. There were, he, he's. No, no, Bobak's just—he's a good—he's good with conversation. He's good with these little weird things that you may have heard people say at a party randomly. These observations that you have to be kind of a good listener to pick up on. I mean, he's not—I'm not, not going to argue—he's like the the Cohen brothers or Tarantino or anything, but yeah, I, I don't know. Something about his something about his quips sit really well with me. I. I I unfortunately don't take notes while I watch his movies or any movies, uh, so I don't have any particularly good zingers written down. But I, I found—I don't know—I found myself chuckling to myself a lot during this movie. I found it my, rather funny. My closing comments would be: I'm very interested in Noah Baumbach's further projects because he seems like a very. Uh, despite my saying that his direction was a little unclear, I like his restraint that he showed in a lot of times in this movie. I like that uh, he didn't let this fall into a, a 
typical Ben Stiller arc where he gets pushed to the edge and then he lashes out to a point where everyone thinks he's gone too far, that kind of thing. You know, he didn't do anything like punch his punch his father-in-law at the at the party and then uh, they all have to recover from this aftermath, which I've seen in Ben Stiller movies before. You know, they sort of let everything was calmed down despite the fact that he had just accused someone of being a major fraud. Every, everyone was able to sort of calm down and then reflect on what had happened, and I, I liked that. So yeah, he was good in his pre-climax. Well, I guess that was a climax, and then in the ending, I just sort of I rolled my eyes at and made a vomit noise. So I'm interested <laughs> in his films. I will I will continue to look out for his projects, and he has this movie to thank for it. So yeah, um, for my closing argument, I, I I'm just gonna say I do urge you to uh, watch. Uh, Francis Ha as well to it, it, it's very dissimilar to this movie uh, it's more naturalistic it fits way less in any sort of box that you like this preconceived idea of a you know down to you know a gritty street level comedy uh, it, it has way fewer pre- preconceived notions than uh, than while we're young uh, but I did really I, I enjoyed While We're Young a lot. I um, particularly dug the uh, myriad film references throughout, I from name-dropping Ghadar and Anuk of the North and D.A. Pennebaker and, uh, <laughs> you know, talking about... All these about people you've never heard of. All these people that film buffs and uh, nerds and students can appreciate. Uh mm-hmm. And the Evangelist on the Blade Runner soundtrack when they were at the shaman's place vomiting up their demons, which was also one of the funniest lines in the movie. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's not going to make any uh, year-end list for me, but uh, I really enjoy it. I'd urge people to go see it. I think it's probably the best thing in theaters right now that we haven't already talked about. Um, yeah, I, I, please see this before Fat Furious 7. Okay, yeah, no, I, and I, I said the same thing. See before Fear 7, but not before The Avengers. So if you yeah. haven't seen it by the time The Avengers comes out, just go see The Avengers. Yeah. <laughs> right. Fair enough, fair enough. And Mike, I want to say that we, we did it, man. We killed that review uh, a half yeah. hour, and now we actually have time to do the right. segment we wanted to do, unlike got last it. time. So. We got it. So yeah, if uh, uh, for anyone who doesn't remember from last time or didn't listen in last time, I, um, we, uh, I sort of pitched this idea of a... Uh, reassessing films in their place in uh, uh, movie history, how they've been received, how people view them. And uh, James put forward a film that I wasn't expecting, honestly, and I didn't think that we'd start off this way, but it's an interesting way to begin. Uh, He is going to do a mini takedown, because he still really loves the movie, of The Dark Knight, as I alluded to earlier in the show. So why don't I shut up now and uh, you take it away, James. Yeah, so... Uh, you know, this segment's called Worst of the Best, so implicitly you're still, I'm still of the opinion that this is uh, among what people can consider the best films, but it's just on the lower end of that spectrum. At very least, I could honestly make an argument that it's not among the best, depending on how much you're, are we doing top 50, top 100, top 200? Well, according to IMDB, we could do top 10. uh, We we could do top 5. Do top 5, and it would be there. Uh, Number four. No, honestly, I, I talked. About, I, I said this before. What a ridiculous notion that the vo- voters of IMDb are saying that there are only three films in history that are better than The Dark Knight. That is honestly astounding. 
and I won't really I won't really give that too much credence credence um, because it's just IMDb voters, so whatever. But that that's still ridiculous. So I am doing the Dark Knight, and those of you who know me, who are probably the only people who are listening to this podcast, are people who know me, uh, <laughs> know that I love to death Batman. I collect the comics, read the comics, watch all the films, including the really bad ones. Um, I'm looking at you, Joel Schumacher. <laughs> so I, I'm invested in this series. So why aren't I just you know going down on the Dark Knight and Chris Nolan all the time? I, I'll, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. So, as I said last week, and I'm not assuming everyone listened, I think that The Dark Knight is neither the best Batman film in... Well, neither the best film in the Nolan trilogy, nor the best Batman film in the Nolan trilogy. And I feel like I have to separate those two. I would say that the best Batman film is The Dark Knight Rises, and the best overall film is Batman Begins. And (laughs) The Dark Knight is sort of in that... (laughs) Gasp. I didn't expect that, like, reaction. (laughs) No, I I knew your... I think I'm speaking for... Listeners, I knew oh, okay. I knew that was your stance on it, but I, oh, man, I, I don't know many people who would put Batman Begins number one overall. I know, I, it, it was still very well received, so I you know I, I don't think it's that much of a stretch. I know okay. I know Steve Guntley thinks it's just the best, best, best. So uh, go Steve. Um, <laughs> Does he listen to us? He should. I don't know. Yeah, he should. It's I miss him. Uh, so. In my in my arguments, uh, if we're gonna say that it's not the best film, I have to do the standard filmmaking things, and I will believe me. And I'm not gonna do dumb things like the kind of like insignificant plot holes or pacing because what what Nolan film doesn't have pacing problems and what Nolan film doesn't have did, plot, did you know that minor plot holes? Like, did you know that Christopher Nolan tends to use expositional dialogue just a little too frequently? What? Yeah, I know. It's a really well, original I mean, criticism that I came up with about Interstellar. Yeah, oh, okay, Ugh. good, good. Oh, I, I do eyes. like how in Interstellar they actually had an exposition robot. Like, it, it was did. literally an exposition robot. I thought that was a nice conceit by uh, mm-hmm. uh, Christopher Nolan. Um, but, no, I'm not going to talk about those things, because, honestly, they're not the point of Nolan films. They're, they're not a distraction for me. Uh, there was only... There was only a few... There were some major things that was distracting. I'll get probably the most minor distraction that was still a really distraction because I said I wasn't going to talk about plot holes. I gotta get this one out of the way. <laughs> it's the worst thing, and, and this was a only, this was actually distracting. Like when I was watching the movie, I was like, "Wait, what happened there?" And this is, of course, after the after the big scene in Bruce Wayne's penthouse where they're having the fundraiser for Harvey Dent. Uh, and the Joker throws Rachel Dawes off the roof, and Batman jumps down after her, and somehow they survived the car crash, whatever. I feel like everyone was really focused on that, like, wait, how did they survive? That they forgot how everyone else survived that night. Um, <laughs> because they cut to the mayor's office right after that, right after he saves Rachel Dawes. Uh, they cut to the mayor's office, forgetting that the Joker is still up in Bruce Wayne's penthouse with all of his guests. <laughs> with and, the wealthiest thugs. The wealthiest in Gotham City. The, the wealthiest people at a fundraiser for yeah, the, the district the, attorney. The fundraising people who uh, Bruce Wayne said, one fundraiser with these guys and you'll never need another cent. And it's like, well, sorry, they're all dead. And so well, is Harvey Ten Dent, minutes because... with the Joker and he'll never need another victim. <laughs> And Harvey Dent, by the way, was in a was trapped in a room designed to keep him in, not to keep people out. He so, 
all the Joker had to do was see that there was a, a room with a pipe in the handles, take the pipe out, open the door, kill Harvey Dent, and, you know, go home and sleep? Does the Joker sleep? I don't know. And on the notion of the Joker, let me get this out of the way. Heath Ledger's performance is beyond reproach. I would never, I would not even know how to start his, criticizing his it, performance. So his I'm not performance, his... his performance is so good. It just got you to question whether a man with absolutely no superpowers at all sleeps. Yeah. Yes. Because, because <laughs> of course he sleeps. But then think about it. Can you imagine Heath Ledger's Joker asleep in a bed? Just no. Or asleep anywhere, really? No. No. It not makes sense. No. No, his yeah, his performance he off the un- charts. I wouldn't even know how to human. how to He's criticize un-human. it. Nope. I I don't think I think in this one is a great example of how wonderful performances cannot completely make a movie. You know, uh, Heath Ledger's performance very strong, very standout. W- won the Oscar. I I don't imagine anyone else even had a the uh, snowball's chance in hell, as Mike likes to say, at at dethroning him that year. So, great, if he hadn't have tragically died, he would have gone on to live a, a wonderful life where he win win probably a lot more Oscars. I don't think that would have been his first. Um, I don't think that would have been his only. We would have also so, had a, a Dark Knight Rises that felt a little bit more uh, connected to the Dark Knight. It, yeah, the Dark Knight Rises was bit... pretty much Batman Begins 2. So yeah, it, it was. It really had nothing to do with the Dark Knight, except for a few like plot points that they carried over, like the probably unconstitutional Dent Act. The Harvey Dent um, Act, yeah. The pro- it's probably unconstitutional. I only took a little bit of constitutional law in college, but... If that got my bones, like, kind of, eh, what? You're denying yeah. parole for oh, people who are considered, like, mob criminals, even though that's kind of an unclear distinction? I don't know. You didn't um, need the legislation, man. They might have gotten into much more detail about it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. Maybe they should have added that in. I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Christopher Nolan was probably, he probably did, and they just made him cut it. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say, and this is going to be probably the toughest argument, so I'm kind of going to fit it into the middle of my argument. I don't think the Joker's character was as good as his performance. Mm-hmm. So the Joker's character, I really like how they set up his sort of lust for chaos. And they use the line that he's just a dog chasing cars. And I thought that was a really good metaphor. And honestly, the imagery and the imagery they use to portray him as a dog is unmistakable. You know, there's a scene after after uh, Rachel and Harvey Dent are in danger. Well, after Rachel dies, of the Joker sticking his head out a police a police car window and sticking his tongue out too, like a, like you see a dog does. And a lot of times when Joker's fighting, he makes these almost like barking sounds. It's very well set up. And if that's the Joker character you're going for, then great. Um, but one of the things when they use that line, "I'm a dog chasing cars," he's convincing Harvey Dent that he doesn't really have a plan in this. He's just sort of going with the flow. And that is a total farce. It is a complete and total farce. Everything in that joke, everything in in Christopher Nolan's Joker and the Dark Knight's Joker is meticulously planned, honestly, by a, a, a diabolical genius. There's there's no way he could get these things to work out by just sort of uh, going through it, you know, chasing cars, as he says. There's zero way. So if that's the character you're going for, I would have liked to have seen more of that 
in, in his actions. And I, I, I entertained briefly that the thought might have been that that line that he used was really just to manipulate Harvey Dent, so really he is this guy with the plan. But then, if that's the case, then why did why do they do all this imagery all, all that we were talking about? Why do they try to set him up cinematically and dramatically as the, a dog chasing cars? If they don't if they don't mean it, but they clearly don't mean it because anyone's paying attention. And actually, Mike brought this up that he does have a plan. He planned everything. No, he did. I I don't even I actually don't necessarily let that ruin the character for me because I think that hypocrisy is kind of interesting. <laughs> And, and to, to, to the conviction with which he sells me as a viewer on it, at least the first time, even though he completely betrays that notion constantly throughout the film, uh, I, I found that disconnect interesting. I'm not entirely defending it, but mm-hmm. it, it it provoked me as a viewer, I guess, to reassess him and just think about who he actually was as as a villain. I mean, he is okay. a, he is a villain in this movie. Of course, yeah, I don't think he's the good guy. But, like like um, you're not like I think the fact that I got me to not empathize, but just to to hear him out as much as I did is impressive, especially when he was like you said, completely embodying the opposite. <laughs> like he's the way he's acting is the exact opposite of what he's advocating for. He plans every single uh, attack every single uh, terrorist act that he takes part in. He he is a man with the most intricate plan in the entire Christopher Nolan trilogy. Mm-hmm. And that, that's or movies especially in general. Considering Bane um, and the yes. Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> yeah, um, that's true. Uh, no, I, I I like that and I agree with that. It, um, that was an interesting point you just brought up about the, his hypocrisy being part of his character, and I like that. I don't think the film really put that forward too much it doesn't have to it doesn't have to it doesn't have to draw for god's sake james it's the one time christopher nolan's being a little bit subtle about a point he's may or may not be making god damn it i'll take it (laughs) really dig dig your teeth into it i got the biggest biggest gun in the book you think two-face is the biggest gun in the book which is to me hilarious because this movie has rachel dawes uh oh Rachel Dawes, if you can, just real quick, if you can name me one substantive thing she did in The Dark Knight, I will eat my hat right now. She interrogated Lau. No, she did not interrogate Lau. <laughs> she uh, got Lau to say that he had money, which wasn't, well, he knew about the money, which wasn't hard to do, and then went back to Harvey Dent to ask advice. And then Harvey Dent had the answer immediately, which she picked up on and went back, and then said, oh, what kind of information do you have? Which she gets cut off by Lau to say, here's what I want. And she says, okay, thanks. That that was nothing. (laughs) And honestly, so Rachel Dawes was in Batman Begins also, and honestly, they, of course, got a much better actress to play Rachel Dawes in in The Dark Knight. Maggie Gyllenhaal over Katie Holmes, easy, I'll take that. Uh, but what they did with her character in Batman Begins was honestly better, a lot better. She did have some individual agency by taking, by having the, you know, the the gusto to take Falcone to to task for what he's done. And uh, granted, with aid from Batman, but that's fine. Who is who in Gotham isn't helped by Batman? Um, 
And then she is essential to Bruce Wayne's becoming Batman because she shows him the, you know, the corruption of the city and says, like, you know, look beyond your own suffering, as I think is a line she used. And that was that was integral to him becoming Batman, him deciding to say, like, OK, I can't be this angry billionaire. You know, I have to there's something greater that I need to focus on that my parents tried to do that, you know, I can't do like this. So, you know, then he goes on his journey, he discovers Rosal Ghoul, whatever, and he wouldn't have done that without Rachel Dawes, so I understand that. The Dark Knight abandons everything. She's immediately this this love interest of both of them, uh, and by both of them I mean Batman and, and Harvey Dent, so she's really just there to also create drama and then becomes a damsel in distress later. And the thing is, I don't. I'm not a person who wants every character to be interesting. I'm not a person who wants every character in every movie to be fully fleshed out. But the film itself gives her so much weight. all the th like, And she doesn't do anything in the movie. <laughs> Nothing at all. She does? I, I, I cannot defend Rachel Dawes in this I mean, I, I can defend... Her in the sense that she is played by an infinitely more talented actress. Mm -hmm. um, I, you're right on this point. By the way, I, I don't, I don't want to frame this like I'm necessarily the defense. Or I, oh I'm yeah, the I know you defense. don't. You don't have I, to be the. I'm not. I do think Batman. I, I do think the Dark Knight's the strongest. Uh, mm -hmm. I do think it's the strongest contender in the Nolan trilogy. Uh, I think it is far from beyond reproach and there are many things in the movie to criticize uh, that I'm willing to do that keep it from being number four on the list of the 250 greatest films ever made um, but I still love the movie I, mm -hmm. I do love it I'm not going to defend Rachel Dawes I can't it's uh, no I'm not is, asking her role in this movie film. she in this movie her significance is in relation to the men in her life. That's mm -hmm. that's her that's her role. It's to get Bruce Wayne to feel conflicted over his Batman persona and and his normal life. It's to get him and Harvey Dent butting heads early on. It's to be an instigator for emotion in the for the male parts in this movie. It's a weak role. I'm not going to defend it. And as being anything but that so yeah you're right yeah, yeah but uh, do you think do you think my question is then is that really uh enough to tip the scales for one of the other movies what makes that so significant of a factor in your estimation of them okay all right that's that's good i um the reason so i can't by saying when i say that the dark knight rises for instance is the best bat is the best batman film in the nolan trilogy i can't overlook the fact that dark knight rises completely botched a character too mm -hmm. uh, with talia al ghul who was uh one just wrong in in the batman universe like she wasn't anything like her character she was way too evil you not she didn't have any sort of interesting inner conflict between loyalty to her father and love for Batman so that because that wasn't there at all she was very way too villainous and she was also you know not really flesh if I'm talking about just regular film she's not very fleshed out um, in terms uh, you know in terms of her motivations it's really like oh you killed my father I'm coming back to kill you okay we've seen that a billion times before the difference for me is that Talia al Ghul was never really, I didn't think, the focus in The Dark Knight Rises. 
you know, or at least, at very least, she did not have as much weight as Rachel Dawes did in The Dark Knight. Well, yeah, she's the twist. Yeah, she's the she, twist in the end. Yeah, where, you know, Bane, for me, was really the focus in The Dark Knight Rises, and Bane was done really well. I, I like Bane's character. Some people have called him a set piece because of his mask, but I think Tom Hardy damned it, damned if he didn't try his hardest. And he was terrifying, and the every, th- every line he said was fucking gold. It's a quotable, <laughs> infinitely quotable. Uh, so... I, those are things. That's why I think Rachel Dawes is more of a, a drag than, say, Talia Al Ghul in Dark Knight Rises, um, and also Talia Al Ghul in Dark Knight Rises is. Uh, I, I retract that point before I make it, so I'll, I'll move on. Um, <laughs> but uh, and that really, that for me was way bigger. I hate that Rachel Dawes was just completely thrown away. I don't want to so. I don't know. I, I've heard people say, like, I would have liked it better if they did this, and who the fuck cares who, who you are and what you would like. I think it would if I think it would have been a, a, a good idea, instead of for Rachel Dawes... Have you read The Long Halloween? Yeah, a, a few years ago. Instead, years of, ago yeah. instead of Rachel Dawes, can you imagine A Dark Knight with Gilda Dent? Oh my god. Well, that's the thing, is The uh, the Long Halloween... I don't want to get too much into this, because this is a movie podcast. I'm not going to expect people to have read a graphic novel from But Long ago. Halloween was one of the major bases it's one of, of totally, the Dark Knight, so. Totally. And then, uh, honestly, a direct adaptation of that comic would have probably made a better movie overall. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it would have think... definitely given Harvey Dent the weight he needed. Yeah, because so Harvey Dent could still movie. have his angry conflict if they did go so far as to kill off Gilda Dent, and they wouldn't have brought Batman or Bruce Wayne into this thing, uh, where he really... That, this is why it's not, it's not the best Batman film for me either, because Bruce Wayne's character was so focused on Rachel Dawes' as, oh, she's the savior, I can get out of here. Whereas, like... Batman traditionally for me has never been someone who sees an end. He, he's never he's like, "Oh, I can get out of the out of this this way." He doesn't want to. He can't pull himself away from that, and he certainly would not let a woman uh, or someone uh, his true love um <laughs> you know, his you know, <laughs> that for him. Batman and Gotham is too important for him. Hey, I, l- I love his romance with Catwoman in in the comics. It's you love it's it way honestly, too much. It's tragic because they there's people who want to be together yeah. that know they can't. And Batman, yeah. of course, says no. I, I I choose being Batman over you, and that's something that he doesn't do with. He would in a heartbeat he would take Rachel Dawes over being Batman if someone presented him with that. And that to me was I I didn't like it. And so that. <laughs> Well, he did take uh, Catwoman over being Batman. He did, yeah. It was the first of now two movies where the main character goes off to a far-off place to have sex with with Anne Hathaway (laughs) for the end of time. uh, Until the end of time. (laughs) Because Matthew McConaughey did the same thing in Interstellar. She can't be in this role that too often. Uh, Christopher Nolan has a a vision for her career, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... I think why I said Bat- Batman Begins would be the best film, best film film, and as opposed to best Batman film, because it, it sort of it it gave all its characters I would say equal weight, um, you know, so it didn't have anything like a Rachel Dawes that oh well, it gave all, sorry all its characters it gave weight to were interesting, so Carmine Falcone loved him, loved Carmine Falcone, he was he was really good, also integral to Batman's character. Um, and Rachel Dawes, as I said, actually did something in this movie. Uh, you even had a little bit of uh, interesting character development with Alfred and, and Bruce Wayne. 
that he had to Alfred sort of had to suspend his care his care for Bruce Wayne to sort of see where he's coming from. Uh, but it was definitely still there. And I'll, and Ra's al Ghul, I really liked Liam Neeson. And this is probably Liam Neeson's best role in a long time. Um, if he had gotten the Lincoln role, it probably would have been better. But thank <laughs> God he didn't. And Daniel Day-Lewis got, got a, his third Oscar. May his name be blessed. Yes. <laughs> Keep so, it holy. So yeah, and and I'm and I'm not gonna. I don't want to fall back into. Well, it's still a great movie because it is. Of course it is. Um, but to see it getting the praise it's getting and you know making all these top lists of all time that kind of thing is to me ridiculous. Especially that if even if you look in the other trilogy in the sorry even if you look within the same trilogy, I think there the other films did demonstrable things better. So that is my worst of the best. Okay. I mean, my response is I don't, I don't disagree with any of your negatives on the Dark Knight. I disagree with how uh, positively you remember Batman Begins and the Dark Knight Rises, because, okay. I mean, first of all, if you're judging the Batman Begins as the best movie in the Nolan trilogy, uh, which of the two movies that is Batman Begins, are you referring to, James? Because Batman, Batman Begins is two movies. The Dark Knight's two is, movies, The Dark Knight Rises is two most, movies. No, the Dark, Knight, right, the Dark Knight is not two movies. No, it's two. It's a, it's a really good second half that doesn't have Rachel Dawes in it, and then it's a... Uh, Rachel Dawes does not determine the whole movie. She has... I, the honestly, movie got way better after she died. <laughs> Just watch it. <laughs> Could I do without the moping? Could I do without the moping? Yes, yeah. uh, but it's not a disjoint in the Dark Knight to the level. Okay, Batman Begins. It does not have a Batman Begins has no focus. It's also a much more shot movie. He was flexing his legs as an action director in in. Uh, Batman Begins. I cannot discern half of the action scenes in that movie, to be perfectly honest. It is very like, oh, look at the flash of his cape, or anything. you can't really tell what's happening when the, in the fight sequences. But honestly, that was better for me. I would prefer it that way because in The Dark Knight and in The Dark Knight Rises, a lot of people pointed out that well, if you show everything that's happening in the dark in his fights, it looks really unrealistic. It doesn't play very well because some people are just falling down or they're. You mean if you at slowly. least show hits connecting in the same shot without cutting to imply a hit? No, is... okay, I, I'm not. I don't mean to take it to the that I, extreme so, that they did, I, but I think the idea behind showing less in a fight is better than trying I, to show everything. I also don't understand why you're so uh, enamored with Ra's al Ghul as a villain. He's <laughs> I mean that's that's pure comic book right there, and in a movie that is trying to pride itself, I think I would I would be more open to it if if Batman Begins wasn't a film that prided itself on its gritty realism, and it's mm-hmm. it's you know it being a comic book movie for people who don't like comic book movies. I think that's probably even a blurb on the Blu-ray. Huh. Um, I, I don't know, I don't know. That just seems like kind of the market it's going for, and I mean, God damn it, Ra's al Ghul is. His his motivation his his whole character is right out of that exaggerated comic book milieu. It's not as chaotic as the Joker is. It's not like the Joker. I don't need an explanation for why he feels the way he does or how he came to be the Joker. But Ra's al Ghul's such a 
human character and they try to develop him uh, with real motivations and real goals and it do- it just it it only works on the assumption that he is the villain of this movie uh, like you have to just go okay well he's the villain that's why he wants to do this cuz he's the bad guy but it, it he like he does not belong in the universe of this movie when he invades the second half and takes over the climax it mm-hmm. it's so jarring to me it, it, it's like what the f- batman was just solving crime batman was taking down the mob he was <laughs> he was in he was in essentially the godfather and uh and then rosal comes and uh takes everything to these weird I don't know. He he spews his weird philosophy about Gotham being a diseased limb, and you know I, I get that. I can get behind that motivation, but to defend that as a great character and a great villain is, seems a little misguided to me. But yeah, that's, that, I, I could see it. I I liked his interplay with with Scarecrow, um, who who was done really well in this film, by the way. So no, he was, oh no, he was not done well in the film at you all. You didn't like you didn't like Scarecrow in Batman I Begins. I did not like Scarecrow. No. Okay. Um. I, I okay. I I liked the build up to Scarecrow. Maybe I should rephrase that. Mm-hmm. Um. Because the Scarecrow that I love from the comics it shows up for five minutes and then Rachel hits him with a taser and then he goes away. Yes, that was very which is James climactic. Yeah. You know, if you want that over uh, the final scene between Batman and the Joker, or the final scene between Batman and Harvey Dent, you go right ahead. No, I was thinking. But, I was thinking character. I, I like this character. I like. The, I, I I like the honestly the theme of both of these films is fear, obviously, and that's and I think that really worked well in the dark in the in the Dark Knight Rises when. He sort of had to go back on what his father said in Batman. In Batman Begins, before he died, he said, "Don't be afraid, Bruce." And then he learns in Dark Knight Rises, "You need to be afraid." And that, to me, that's why I almost that that play with Bruce Wayne and, and and Batman is honestly what makes me think that Dark Knight Rises is a better um, is a better Batman movie, just because it did more with the character of Bruce Wayne and Batman. I think that's uh, probably your most controversial statement because you know everyone's thoughts on that movie. That's Barely There's a Batman. not enough Batman. There's no Batman in it. And that I roll, I roll, I roll, I roll. <laughs> I I don't know. I can't get over that because they they don't tell, see him in a costume. It's suddenly not well, him. Tell everyone. <laughs> yeah, right. It does. I, far and away has the most development for Bruce Wayne Batman mm-hmm. as a character. I'll give you that. Definitely. Everyone loved, you know, Iron Man three, for instance, because well, one of the things they loved about Iron Man three, I should say, is I hate all the Iron stuff Man. you got from. I know, is, <laughs> is what you got from from Tony Stark, you know, as a character outside the suit. Everyone's like, oh man, I really like that, but you know, they didn't extend that to the Dark Knight Rises when you know Bruce Wayne is learning to sort of he's in the pit. I loved that that whole sequence when he's in the pit, learning to climb out of it and not. And he does have to shed these preconceived ideas that he had got before, like, oh, I'm indestructible, I can't be afraid of dying, that needs to be the furthest thing from my mind. And the guy says, no, if you're afraid of dying, you can make it. If you're not, then you're not going to go anywhere. Um, and I, I loved seeing Bruce Wayne in that in that time where he's like, I am I am afraid, I'm afraid of, of dying in this... I'm afraid of being in here while my city dies. Uh, <laughs> I, my, I, my thought is this. 
I've, I've heard a lot of petty criticisms about the Dark Knight Rises, mostly uh, like lapses in logic, which I think are weak criticisms. Um, especially but, if Nolan films. They're especially if Nolan films. I, I, and comic book films, to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. I do think, though, that it does point to something a little bit uh, broader about the movie that that is kind of... I mean, you could you could take it however you want, I guess, but just an observation. Everything seems designed to make Bruce Wayne, Batman, go through an arc, uh, which is nice, which is great to see. It's just everything is so pla- is so elaborately placed before him mm-hmm. to go through this uh, struggle and to come out of it as a, you know a different person than he went into it which i mean i got to give it credit at least that's more than any of the than the other two films did i mean with the exception i guess batman begins he goes through training he becomes batman but i mean yeah, a real spiritual character development uh in the dark knight rises it, it's very well done it's just it's the whole Everything in the movie seems structured around it pretty mm-hmm. deliberately. Like every like like Bane only put Batman in that prison so he could escape from it. Like yeah, I mean, <laughs> so he could get to the point where he could get out of that hole, which is a amazing scene. I love that, that scene, scene so much. It's it's one of the it. most really empowering well scenes in a movie ever made. Logically, it doesn't make sense at all. Um, no, no, Bane could have th- like it. it like, well, why didn't Bane throw Batman into uh, a volcano or some... I, I don't know. Why, why didn't he kill Batman? Why didn't he just blood. kill Batman, basically? Yeah. Um, and his reasoning and why is Why are there no like... guards standing on top of it? Well, it's because Batman had to make that arc. That That's why. So I guess it's a little bit more heavy-handed in that sense. It's a very heavy-handed movie, but you know, welcome to Christopher Nolan. Um, yeah, and I think that they, they try to do something... They try to push Batman to its limits in The Dark Knight, but I don't think it worked, but with the Joker because his whole thing they had that really ethical quandary they, they, they put they NSA put him, machine yeah they put him to his moral limits it, and honestly I don't really think they did because he's like oh we gotta do this but and you know Lucius I got like, I got Lucius and I liked it because they well they they had that um, segment with uh, where Alfred is explaining his uh, former days in the SAS when he was uh, trying to hunt the jewel thief who didn't, you know, was a lot like the Joker and then he wasn't looking for anything logical. Uh, and then how they how they caught him was by burning the forest down. So the the machine was Bruce Wayne's attempt to, you know, burn the forest down, burn the city down, basically find, to find one man. But the thing is, he has it all planned out. Like, he, this machine's going to be destroyed as soon as I find the Joker. It's not a big deal. It's not this huge moral quandary that you're trying to make it out of. So really, the Joker doesn't, succeed in pushing Batman to his limits the way that I'd say Bane succeeded in pushing uh, Batman to his limits in uh, The Dark Knight Rises? Well, Joker's point was to, by pushing Batman, destroy everything he stands for. And Bane... I don't know that, seemed, that like, honestly, stands for Bane, like, basic civil rights. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, I don't know. People have actually made a pretty strong argument about The Dark Knight being a, uh, an allegory for... George Bush, uh, the United War on Terror. The War on Terror. Uh, but that's that's silly. Um, yes. Thank you. Um, why Bane comes off to me as being the most brutal life coach anyone's ever had. 
He's like he's like worse than J.K. Simmons in Whiplash. He's, he's worse than J.K. Simmons in Whiplash, but he is J.K. Simmons. Yeah. But he is J.K. Simmons in Whiplash. Actually, let's reflect on a J.K. Simmons played Bane. <laughs> um. Oh my God. <laughs> if anyone could top Tom Hardy, um. Uh, I, I mean, I guess, I guess that's that's why I respond to Joker a little bit, a little bit more strongly. Bane just seems like a, a someone who's there to bring the protagonist to the next point in their development, whereas Joker, Joker just does not belong. He doesn't fit into any hole. He doesn't. That's true. He. he has no role but to disrupt. And whether or not he's got a plan to do that, I think that that's false. The, the fact that the Joker is not after anything logical still holds. And uh, Bane is very much after something logical. Bane's goals can be put in a manifesto, which makes him a... To me, that makes him a weaker villain. That makes him less memorable. I'm not oh, gonna, I think he's a weaker I, villain. I'm not, I'm not gonna... Know, of course. <laughs> I, I'm not gonna deny that he has... Like, he is, his lines are incredible. Um, that's such good dialogue, and it seems like a big F you to Joel Schumacher, who just made Bane say Bane for the but entire fucking movie. Bird. <laughs> Bane's just so much more of an obstacle to overcome, whereas the Joker is a force that he's an unstoppable force. There's, there's more. There's more interplay. I... Yeah, totally. It's that's what fascinates me more about the, the Joker is he fits less into a heroes and villains. Uh, I mean, he's obviously the villain, of course, but he fits less cleanly into that struggle than Bane does. Okay, that's fair. Right. Um, and I, I think that. The, Mind you, I think the fact that you could have a conversation with both of them on similar grounds is pretty impressive. It's better than anything I could say about the villains of Batman Begins. Um, I, I will give you that. I, I hate the villains of Batman Begins. They, um, I, I, okay, with the exception of Carmine Falcone. Oh, no, no, no. Carmine Falcone is great. And I, I feel like people disregard him because he's not a traditional villain. Uh, but to anyone who, read the, who actually has read Batman comics, they know that, that, that that's a ridiculous thing to say. And um, he was he was done so well in that movie, played really well too. I can't even well, remember the actor's name, but I yeah, love that guy. But I feel like he's so super underrated because everyone always who who were the villains in Batman Begins? Well, it's Scarecrow and it's Russell. Oh, cool. cool. It's like of course. No, Carmine Falcone's in there. And he was honestly such a better gangster guy than Salvatore Moroni. And honestly, if if, if Rachel zapped him with a taser, I don't think he would just go away. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I leave my argument at that. I've said my piece. Uh, the why I think the Dark Knight is not as good as everyone says, and I think that's the function of the worst of the best. So yeah, maybe, totally. Maybe, I, maybe you still think I'm shit. Whatever. Yeah, I mean, you're probably not gonna. I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I I think the point of the reason I'm happy you brought it up is because I want people to at least acknowledge or at least view movies that they take as established in different ways. And I think that there's totally room to do that with the dark Knight. I think everyone loves it so much. I love it so much. Um, I do think it's the best in the trilogy, but I think it's, I think it's the best in a trilogy in which none of the movies are beyond reproach. You know, it's mm -hmm. a film that you can get into criticisms with any of them. Um, and I'm kind of interested in where the different weak spots in the trilogy are, where, you know, where certain films lag I find or where they don't, do as well for me and how I mean honestly I feel like other films pick up elements where the other films fail other films are better at, it was 
Dark Knight Rises is better at character development. Uh, uh, Dark Knight presents a way more interesting opposing force to Batman, and it's just such a clean, engaging plot all the way throughout. And Batman, I think, really nails the human relationships and the connections between them. So uh, they all have their strong points. They all have their weaknesses. I think it's, I think it's important to address all of that in in looking at the Batman movies. And I think the, the thing to avoid is just to put them on a pedestal and canonize them and never really talk about them again. So th- I think it was a good choice to start this segment out with. It's unexpected for me, but I, I I'm happy you did bring it up. And yeah. And if, if my arguments were a little bit hazy up on them, um, I'm, I was not able to watch any of the Batman movies before this recording, so I'm kind of going off of... You got owned! I'm going off of... Uh, I probably did. I'm going off of, like, years-old memory here, so okay. uh, apologies for that. Uh, but it was your argument anyway, so I didn't really yeah. want to... No, I mean, you, as a, you don't need to be, like, an opposing force. Regardless, um, we... The, it was, uh, honestly, a pretty good episode. We stuck to our timeline pretty well. Awesome. Um, and we're, next week, we're going to do one of two things. Yeah, it's uh, on what happens. We'll, you'll see which one we end up posting. Yeah, yeah. Whatever we end up posting, you'll see. But um, if we do, if we go a traditional podcast, I will say, um, we will be doing a, Mike, Mike will be doing his uh, Best of the worst with AI artificial intelligence, which I yeah. need to see. So yep, you got to watch that. We will coordinate, but I really want to have I I want to have a back and forth on this movie because this is AI is a film that no one. It's not that no one can can reach a decision on. It's that so many people despise it, and quite a few people are quite vocal in praise of it, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm one of those people. And I, I'm kind of afraid of it getting overshadowed by... It, it's because it's been getting popular to hate this movie, so I really want to have a back and forth on this. But uh, we'll get to that eventually. But And we're probably not doing a review ne- this week unless something some surprise <sighs> film launches, because there's just not many interesting films out, so sorry. But yeah, we're going to try to make the most of what we what we have, and we are going to try to do something a little non-traditional. I'm not going to plug it in case it fails, because then you can never <laughs> hold us to it again. True, because um, it could fail pretty bad. But uh, expect uh, actually don't don't expect anything from next episode. It could be it, it could be whatever we want it to be. It could be very different than uh, what we've done so far. But uh, that's it for this show. Uh, thank you, everyone, very much for listening. Uh, and uh, I hope you hope you enjoy it. I hope you share it. And uh, Hope to ca- favorite. F- do everything. Tell all Unfriend your friends about us, it. Uh, Unfriend us. Uh, uh, come and murder us in our houses. <laughs> Pretty far there's away. There's a lot of options. There's a lot you of could, options you have. You could so. have all kinds of reactions to this. And uh, But uh, I do hope you, you all enjoy it. And I uh, hope you catch the next one, whatever it may be. Yep. Thank you for listening.